This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. As soon as you start connecting stuff to the internet, privacy and security become critical. To talk about this, I brought on two good friends of O'Reilly for a conversation back in February. Ari Gesher is engineering ambassador at Palantir Technologies, and he's the author of a recent O'Reilly book called The Architecture of Privacy on engineering technologies that can deliver trustworthy safeguards. Kip Bradford is a research scientist at the MIT Media Lab. He's a biomedical engineer by training, and he's the co-author of Distributed Network Data, From Hardware to Data to Visualization. Kip has also written and spoken extensively on the idea of frictionless frameworks, which are changing the way that products are developed. We kicked off this conversation with Ari explaining Google's then-recent decision to shutter glass. There's been a, a few people who, who misunderstood what, what it meant when Google shut down the glass program. Hmm. I like to use the metaphor of an alien invasion, and that's sort of like people are celebrating because the scouts have withdrawn. Uh, <laughs> it's like, like they, they called it the Explorer program for a reason, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. The alien invasion is, is coming. Like, yeah, yeah. It was an experiment. And one of the really interesting aspects around the internet of things in the future is that we're we're probably going to enter a realm not too long from now where pretty much everything is recorded. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I don't mean like by sensors on a building or a surveillance camera. I mean like your phone or your glasses or whatever. It's just going to record your entire life. Now, of course, you can turn it off, but a lot of people are going to turn it on because there's great reasons to do that. And a lot of the focus in in security and privacy circles have to do with thinking about the government or even a corporation as an adversary. And the thing that we haven't really thought about is what does it just mean to be polite in mm-hmm. a world where everything is being recorded. Yeah. Right. And 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 it's it's interesting that all the rage was directed toward Google. You know, Glass was a completely obvious mechanism that by which you could record, right? It's like a it's like the most obvious eyeglasses you could possibly imagine with a light on it. And um and it's from a company that generally does better than a lot of other companies on this kind of privacy. Sure. Thing. Sure. So yeah, like the 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 least harmful um implementation of this vision of everything recorded was withdrawn and people are sort of celebrating that. You're right. It's opening the the door for whatever's yes. next is well, going to be much more probable. Well, and I think in some ways it's just a, it's an example of, of the way that a lot of people feel about all this stuff is that they kind of don't want to think about it. And when they're reminded of it, then it bothers them. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like, mm-hmm. could I be recording everything with my phone anyway already, or at least audio or like have it on the table surreptitiously? Like, absolutely. But like, no one fears your phone. Right. Right. Uh, the fact that it's mounted up here, like somehow puts that out there. You see a lot of the same stuff when people start doing analysis of Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, people don't have the the real visceral sense of what it means to perform an act of publishing, even though it is an act of publishing. And then if you suddenly mm-hmm. say, well, hey, you put out all these tweets. Now look what I can learn about you from it. Mm-hmm. That feels creepy, even though right. like you put that data out there. And right, so I right. think once it gets in your face or on your face, I guess, in the case of glass, <laughs> uh, suddenly people like have very different feelings about it, even though the situation hasn't really changed. Right, right, right. So speaking of faces, what is really fascinating to me about the conversation about security and the Internet of Things is the, the second face of uh, 
the data stream. So we have the incoming data stream, which is the collection of data from all these physical devices. Mm -hmm. But so many of these physical devices have intelligence in them to begin with, or have for a long history had intelligence in, in them to begin with, because that intelligence is used to control the device. So looking at, at things from automobiles to air conditioners to medical devices to power plants to our, our whole electrical grid, um, these are things that we've, we've put sophisticated control systems in. And now we're putting those control systems on the internet, literally. And a lot of that's done certainly to be able to collect data and gain intelligence from that. But some of it's also to be able to use that intelligence to be able to do predictive uh, analytics and then be able to do control. So we're taking that control out of the local loop and mm. putting it into a more global loop in some cases, um, which opens up all kinds of interesting opportunities. Yeah, yeah. And challenges. And risks. And significant risks. Yes. Um, yeah, so what, what, how do you define uh, the difference between security and privacy? Yeah, um, I mean, I think the, the, the way to really think about that in a gross sense is that security is about stopping unauthorized use of a system. Um, and privacy controls inside a system are actually more around um, controlling the use for authorized users. Hmm. So it's about making sure that things are used in the way that they're intended and, and doing what you can to mitigate privacy risk. I mean, this is a line from the book is it's like any access to data. Uh, sensitive data represents a privacy risk. You know, one of the things that, that we prescribe in the book is that you need both access controls and you need active oversight mm -hmm. to understand mm -hmm. how these things are being used. And so privacy ends up being a very different beast because uh, it's also a, a very hard thing to nail down, like even even in a philosophical sense, what is privacy? Right, right, right. Um, you know, some people call it the right to be left alone, uh, the confidentiality. So, but but I think the place where, where security and privacy break ranks to a certain degree is that that most of security is about stopping unauthorized access mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and and privacy is about controlling authorized access interesting yeah so privacy is just a more nuanced and more difficult <laughs> version of security absolutely i yeah. mean and, and the primitives the, the the mechanisms that you use are exactly the same okay. um but security feels a little bit more like a technical problem like you can sort of measure whether or not people have gotten in or out mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. and uh and privacy is a little bit softer mm -hmm, uh mm -hmm. in that that of something that that rises to level of privacy risk is more about the potential rather than the actuality. So right, right, like, right. Did this information leak? Was it actually used for anything bad? Right? Yeah, yeah. And that's very closely tied to societal expectations. Right? Absolutely. And that's and that's one of the interesting things. You know, Tim O'Reilly spoke yesterday about um, the need to just change societal expectations around privacy and come to a better consensus about um, what we expect um, with when it comes to privacy. From things like uh, you know healthcare or our or the sensors in our homes or things like that, and then and then also build that into a better privacy framework. Well, and this is why I bring up the issue of being polite, because mm -hmm. you know when you when you start doing threat modeling and you're thinking about like maybe there's a nation state who wants to get my data, it's like there's only so much. You, there's things you can do, but there's only so much you can do. But when you think about more like the normal use case that we're going to be faced with, which is like you and I are having a conversation and we're both recording it, mm -hmm. suddenly we're all going to have big mountains of data about other people. And we don't know what the disposition of that data is. Forget legally. Let's assume that like there's no wiretapping statutes or anything like that that are like make it so that it's illegal to do it. But like you have this recording, and the question is, can I share it on Facebook? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And and I have no way to know what your preferences are. Um, and so there needs to be some frameworks built to make this as frictionless as possible. And this is the thing I've been thinking a lot about, which is what I like to, I haven't decided on the right name, if it's negotiated privacy or polite privacy. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and, but the idea is that the, the devices themselves need to know our preferences mm -hmm. uh, and they need to communicate with each other without us being involved at all. 
and 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 negotiate those preferences yeah. uh, and tag the data in a way that just says, I prefer you don't share this or you can share this, but in a limited way. So on a social, like, you know, with your friends on Facebook mm -hmm. uh, or you can share it publicly or uh, and the other place where it gets interesting, once you have the standard of being able to tag the data with the preferences and who was involved, you can start saying it's okay to share this data, but only on a social network that respects the tagging. Right, right, right. right. A lot like the Creative Commons licenses, right? You know, keep this tag attached uh, exactly. at all times. Exactly. Well, like the mattress tags. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and once you build a framework like that, things get kind of interesting because you can, I mean, one way to think about like what is it what is the situation that we have now that's actually very analogous to what it'll be like then it's like imagine every conversation is with a reporter mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and so and there's and there's actually a well established social pattern or set of expectations around things being on the record off the record on background and so right, on and so right. forth right and so you can imagine having to but and that, that's something you negotiate with a reporter when you're when you know you have when you're talking to them sort of officially um and we need those same kinds of things to be able to apply to just our casual conversations mm -hmm. have it do it totally seamlessly have good ux around when the negotiation fails and then it starts getting kind of interesting because if you solve the polite problem the the problem of like how, how how am i just a good friend to you how can i just not be like not disrespect your wishes around this stuff you need a framework that then enables a whole other kind of a lot of different possibilities in privacy so like there's no reason you can't use the same framework to talk to your environment mm -hmm. so to, mm -hmm. to negotiate your preferences with a building right um or or to to say like tag data is actually really important to, to have for all kinds of things so i it has a lot of it has a lot of potential and it's just it's a new idea and, and i I've, I've been shopping the idea around and everyone's like yeah, that's a good idea. Someone should think about that. And, and no one is like, like it, it's really about how you mend the social fabric from, from a tear that you know is coming from, from uh -huh, the onslaught uh -huh. of technology. Yeah, that's, uh, I think I'll, I'll second that and I'll, I'll push it a layer further because thinking about a transaction that we all do, driving our cars, yep. by law, we all have to have insurance. Our cars are becoming smarter. What happens when our insurance companies start getting the data from our cars? as part of the contract of getting car insurance. I mean, I've, I've never seen anyone discuss this yet, but this is, if I'm an insurance company, uh, if I'm AAA, I'm thinking exactly this. Absolutely. How do I get at the data of every driver in, in my network and, and see what they're doing and see how they behave and set their rates appropriately? And, and, and some of it may not end up being sort of like a, a regulation or an absolute need where you can't get insurance without right. it, but there may be differential pricing. Well, the, the oh, right, yeah, right, like, like yeah. we wanna see your driving data and then you get these rates. And if you right. wanna keep that data private, Here's the surcharge. Right. right. And the and the market will push everyone eventually into exposing their data because adverse selection will send yep. the safest drivers into the plans where your data is exposed, leaving a progressively more dangerous, less insurable population that's refusing to share their data until at the end, perhaps 10% of people don't share their data and they're pretty reliably dangerous drivers. So it accomplishes the same thing. Exactly. It does if there doesn't become a strong movement towards wanting to preserve privacy because we we see this already just in e-commerce mm -hmm. um which is that if you take great pains to do anonymous transactions you get flagged as, as do, being fraudulent mm -hmm. uh, even mm -hmm. though you're not right and it, and algorithmically it makes sense because yes the correlation is really tight people who tend to try to want to hide what they're doing are probably doing something nefarious but but there are other people who just uh, there was actually a, a professor who did an experiment of trying to buy everything she needed for her pregnancy and for her new baby uh, while maintaining anonymity. Mm -hmm. uh, and it turned out to be very difficult. Uh, one of the, the hardest ones was to buy a stroller on Amazon where it's like discounted 50%. It's like, how do you do an anonymous transaction with Amazon? Right. And the answer is you buy a lot of gift cards. But it turns out gift cards is a great way to launder money. So like, <laughs> and like, so suddenly uh, the transaction shut down uh -huh. um, even though you know she wasn't doing anything wrong. So there's definitely that. I, I think the only way to push against that is for people to say, no, it's actually really okay for us to be anonymous. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's an important thing 
to preserve as much as we possibly can. Well, do you think social media has actually has has made people more aware of privacy and and more eager to to preserve it, or has it just widened the gate for all of us and and caused people to to start getting comfortable with exposing all sorts of things about themselves? Well, it's interesting that the modern notion of privacy um, comes from Kodak cameras in like the hmm. very late 1800s, where hmm. before that, like, and the, this is like the first writing about because, and it's funny because there's this there's this funny moment. We're, we're in a funny moment in history, which is that privacy requires the ability to move through a space anonymously. And it turns out that in order to do that, you need cities. Because if everything's rural, everyone knows where you are and you never leave where you came from. There's no right, way right. to move anonymously when everybody knows you. So, so you need this, like, this incredible urbanization that happens as a result of the Industrial Revolution. So it's like just the latter half of the 18th century that, that was like even like a real possibility in, mm-hmm. in, any, in any wide sense. Uh, so there's this really tight little golden period and then someone invents the camera, right? And so then Kodak like, comes out with a camera and suddenly people are like, wait a second, I'm down at the beach with my friends and we're having, we're having some laughs and now I can't do that in a way that my wife doesn't find out about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like there it was this big deal. And, and we've seen this erosion of this, this combination of technology eroding privacy, uh, you know, going on for the better part of a, a little bit more than a century. But it's, it's interesting in, in the, the arc of human history, an expectation of privacy is a really weird thing. Hmm. That's an interesting point. Well, there's, there hasn't been a lot to erode it, is what you're saying. Yeah, 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 absolutely. yeah. yeah and I, I think there's a numbness to it now. Um, also, because we're saturated with with things that remove our privacy to the point where we don't even know. And I think you can look at anything like um, EasyPass that that knows where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, your phones. Actually, one, one of the funny things uh, about the wireless sensor networks that we did, uh, we, we did a deployment at Google that was 600 wireless sensor networks. And there are microphones on these that don't have the bandwidth, uh, the, the wireless transceivers don't have the bandwidth to transmit conversation right they could look at sound pressure levels that would tell you how loud a room was and people were freaking out you know this is these are people at google io so people who know a lot about technology are freaking out because because they're devices with microphones yet they're walking around with google glass and they're walking around with cell phones in their pockets and and or, or just their laptops i mean and their laptops it's been yeah. interesting to me to watch people's reaction to be to like tape over the camera on their right, laptop yeah, it's yeah. like oh it's like well, what about the microphone right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. so there're all these things that are that can record your location your movements can record the things that you're saying can record the things that are around you and and the the desensitization to those devices is I think fairly prevalent because when you put something like a wireless sensor mode that that really can't do anything other than tell you temperature, pressure, humidity, and and sound levels in the room that's unfamiliar, it's like, oh my God, you're recording us. <laughs> Whereas you've got three devices on your person that that have been recording you all day for the last three years of your life. Right. So I think people have just gotten so used to uh, interacting with with products around them that are connected products, mm-hmm. and and that's the the thing that I think is is really interesting. Like that further erosion of privacy really is going to be driven um, a lot by the fact that that we don't really think about it anymore. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and people just don't react to the things that they're they're aware of. Mm-hmm. There is no privacy without security. Mm-hmm. In that the only way to implement any kind of privacy controls requires that you have working security. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's, you know, what's the point if you can just get unauthorized access? So the security implications of Internet of Things of what it takes to secure these things, I think, is actually really interesting. And I think um, there's a fundamental piece. One of the ways that you sort of analyze security is to talk about the surface area of something, mm-hmm. um, and and there's there's a couple of different ways to think about the surface area. So like if you have like an internet server, the surface area is like what ports are open and what software is connected to it. But another sort of deeper analysis of that is what code does this thing tra- traverse 
in order mm-hmm. to perform its operations and that every line of code is sort of a piece of surface area in an attack. And one of the great insights I heard at DEF CON a few years ago is that they that someone expects the 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 security of the internet to go down um, mm. as we switch to IPv6. Interesting. Because IPv4 stacks are, have been around forever and they're hardened and everyone's found those security, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them. And uh-huh. IPv6 represents a lot of untested code, right? And so just, just that simple switchover represents a huge increase uh, in the, the, the expected incidence of, of bugs that, that, that allow sort of security exploits. Right. I'd expect the same thing from the Internet of Things, right? Um, maybe a little bit less at the platform level as we as, as things kind of converge around, you know, like you're going to do this, run Android, or you're going to do this, you know, run Wind River, you know, VXWorks or whatever it is. Uh, but but just the just the fact that there are communications channels and and if you have things that are on the on the net and they need to communicate, it's easy to mess up the crypto. It's easy to make all kinds of mistakes, and so uh, there's this incredible blooming of the fractal surface area of, of of code that 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 could potentially have a security flaw that will leak information yeah that's a really terrific and and very subtle point i mean that um, a lot of people talk about the security on the internet of things as increasing the surface area just because you increase the number of things on the internet which is a, which is also true and you increase the uh, the replicability of um of you know kinds of attacks breaking into a house is no longer a matter of picking one lock at a time in succession maybe you find an exploit in thousands of a particular model of connected lock that sort of thing but this is a really interesting idea and and it it reflects the fact that a lot of um not only are a lot of internet of things products new um but also uh a lot of these types of products have never been online before yep. and they're um, and the platforms themselves are new right yeah yeah, yeah. or yeah. they've or they're platforms that have been mostly offline um in the past yeah. and uh, you know a lot of the a lot of the security um outlook in iot comes from the old industrial security outlook where you where you assume that if you're standing in front of an industrial control that you showed your driver's license and id to a guard at the at the gate and you're authorized to be standing in front of this big gray box on the wall yeah yeah a lot of the industrial uh security applications and and tools have come through the idea of the air gap uh famously broken by stuxnet Mm -hmm. and and most of these these devices, the think, thinking was, if you've got something that was a critical system, well, just take it off the network and make sure that there are no ways of getting, uh, of, of jumping over that air gap. But the reality is that humans have to interact mm-hmm. with these devices and there are frequent software updates on them. And if they're not software updates, there's still ways of getting into the system. So Absolutely. The, the assumption that we've got a PLC, we've got some kind of ladder logic or some device logic that's in our power plant or in our factory, um, in our switch gear on the grid that that does not connect to the internet. Um, the assumption had been that, well, then therefore it's safe mm-hmm. until somebody yep. walks in and has to do some maintenance on it and plugs in some diagnostic tool. Now you've broken that air gap. So, so that assumption is a faulty assumption. And the more people have recognized, well, you know, there's actually value in having the stuff connected in a way that we can we can continually diagnose it in real time um well we're going to do that instead of running our own proprietary cables we're going to do that through the internet mm-hmm. and even mm-hmm. if we do r- run the proprietary cables the endpoint is going to be some office somewhere where people are sitting at computers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and somewhere in that office there are other computers on the network and so the threads that have connected these pieces were threads that were previously thought safe and they've been exploited yeah so now the the approach is saying well how do we make these devices intrinsically secure in the first place and that's a new conversation 
to a lot of the developers of of these products. Mm -hmm. When when I think about the Internet of Things, I really think about the transition from from intelligent devices to becoming intelligent network devices on the internet. And that is a pretty fundamental shift because what it means is now we can access it from anywhere. I mean, the the desire to be able to get that data uh, and do something useful with it is driving the connectivity and thus opening up, you know, increasing the surface area by orders of magnitude. And, and this is where the, the surface area of, of, of code issue be, becomes really apparent. Because if you look at the, the history of security on the internet, when the internet was first built, uh, it thought of itself as an air gap network. It was mm -hmm. like, it's just mm -hmm. us researchers here. It'll be right, fine. Right. Yeah. And then you have something like the Morris worm, which finds some sort of place where there wasn't really like it actually didn't it didn't find some strange security exploit it just used it and it uh -huh. brought down the whole internet right <laughs> um and and people said oh we need to start thinking about security and we've seen evolutions uh in all of the protocols from http or smtp and all these places where people said oh at first we don't need security and then they've bolted it on as an afterthought uh, and, it, and for the most part it's actually worked pretty well um but the thing that i want to point out is that if you look at the the sort of the big spectacular bugs of the past year None of them are like protocol errors. None of them are like TLS is broken. It's right. this implement, someone made a programming error in this implementation of it. Right. Right. And so, so, and, and, and I think IoT, the first thing it needs to say is, oh, we're on the internet. We're, we need to right. apply security to this yeah. and acknowledge. We, right. right. And we've been through that exercise before, right? Yeah. Which is like, oh, okay. So everything needs to be encrypted and we actually have good protocols around that stuff. But the implementations are actually where the risk is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, a, a terrific argument in favor of, um, you know, fast tracking this protocol discussion that's going on around the IoT, where you have these consortiums trying to sort of develop standard protocols for the IoT, uh, standard platforms that a lot of people will use. And I've been a skeptic, generally, of some of these efforts. Like, I, I see why they're important in the abstract. And you can go back to the web and see why web standards have made the web, you know, what it is. Um, but I've never spoken with someone who has, like, a healthcare sensor startup and says, if only Cisco published a spec that I could use <laughs> for my for for a you know a protocol in my in my service, um, and so I've I've not it has always looked to me like a lot of um, you know solutions running around and looking for problems, um, but this is a terrific argument for everyone concentrating on a handful of standardish protocols and platforms, right. scrutinizing them very deeply with all the scrutiny that's gone into things like TCP IP and um, HTTP and, you know, um, browser interpretation of JavaScript and stuff like that that's made all of these, you know, safe and robust. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think yeah. that that's that's correct that like first, I mean, the, the nice thing that the, that the protocol work does is then it lets you start standardizing around implementations and then libraries appear and then the friction goes down about putting yeah. security into your stuff. And like, hopefully you get a good open source implementation. Uh, hopefully it doesn't have something like a heartbeat bleed bug in it like yeah, OpenSSL yeah. did. Um, but OpenSSL is better than no OpenSSL, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, even with Heartbleed, um, you know, the alternative is uh, everyone with no particular security expertise trying to bake this thing. Write their own SSL stack. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. absolutely. Which is, that's a recipe for tears, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and I think you... You hit on a point which is really, really critical, which is that uh, without those standards and those protocols, everybody's going to be reinventing the wheel. And mm -hmm. there's no shared intelligence going into making these devices uh, secure, making these devices upgradable in a way that when when people, instead of having people hack exploits on a thousand different devices and you've got you know, some kids who recently graduated from MIT who are building their startup and, and it's like, hey, look at this great cool thing that we made. Um, we decided to build our own software stack from scratch because we could. 
and mm-hmm. and now you've got something that's that's in people's homes or is in commercial environments that doesn't have the visibility that a protocol would have mm-hmm. so you know what's to stop somebody from from like getting fired from the startup and and going away and being like yeah i know this little secret portal and when that device gets put in bank of america um, i'm going to crack it and i'm going to flush all the money out of the bank. So when you create those protocols, what you're creating is a high degree of visibility. And you know that's something that, yep. that Ari and I had talked about. That you, you get the visibility and then you also get to reduce the surface area, right? So that's the other <laughs> yeah, thing is that, that very much when so. you have standards, then you can you can solidify around sort of standard implementations right. for, for different areas. And then like the amount of code that's implementing CSS, SSL, or for example, you want it to be as low as possible. Right. You're right. still gonna, you still have the, the programming error issues that you run into with something like Heartbleed, but like you get that anyway. And if, ever, if everyone's doing <laughs> themselves and it's even worse right? Yeah. right right yeah then there are 10 times as many implementations that have problems and and, and, just, and fewer eyeballs to to find right, to right, find those errors right. yeah exactly it's just it's a it's a matter of like scrutiny and the power that the power of the community to go into it you can't sub you shouldn't subdivide the community into a million different projects yep so do you guys think um to to go back to an even more generalized question is the iot just an extension of the privacy concerns um and and models of the uh of the internet into you know a slightly larger sort of field, or is it something completely different? The um, emerging standards in the IoT and and the use cases of the IoT really are an extension to me of the internet in general. And what's different here is that that we have a lot more machines talking to machines. So the idea that those transactions do need to be mitigated in a way so that that a machine needs to know what information it can validly share with a different machine. Um, that's a really, really important part of the conversation because, from a practical point of view, you've got you've got two ways to look at that um, that conversation. One is your refrigerator doesn't need to talk to your garage door opener. Number two, the information that you share from your refrigerator um, should be able to be contained in some domain, and that domain might be. Uh, a domain where you agree as as the human being that set up that IoT device, you agree that that information can be shared with the grocery store that will restock you. You know, maybe you've mm-hmm. got a uh, contract with Cisco, uh, not CISCO, but SYSCO, yeah, right, right. The, the food provider, so that when certain items become out of stock in your, your commercial refrigerator at your restaurant, they know what to restock. You, mm-hmm. It might sound like an abstract case, but if you think about... 7-Eleven, they've got an amazingly sophisticated distribution network. And one of the things that the Internet of, of Things enables is that sort of sophisticated distribution network being applied to the individual uh, restaurant instead of the franchised 7-Eleven mm-hmm. to bring the same kind of value that 7-Eleven had to an individual restaurant uh, through a Cisco-like company. So how do you mitigate the, the openness of those transactions? You don't want that information uh, shared with your competitors necessarily. Mm-hmm. Well, so, and I think that highlights an even larger issue, which yeah. is that um, what we're seeing now is a lot of cloud-connected devices. And while I have the device and I can turn it on and off, I have no idea what happens with the data once it goes up in the right. cloud. Your device is generating all this data, your refrigerator, your commercial refrigerator, and it's going, you're worried about, you know, from a competitor's perspective, what is, how well is the security implemented on the cloud side? Forget right. about the device, but just right, like, right. And, 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 forget, and forget the security issues, but actually the privacy issues about well, what, value does that data have and who do you want to share it with but but is that a fundamentally different question than you know is my browsing data in the cloud secure you know if you use uh, chrome and it goes up to up to google fundamentally i believe it's the same but i think uh the cardinality is much greater hmm. which is to say like 
there's like, you know, maybe three browsers that you would use, maybe yeah, four. Yeah. Um, and, and you can understand how each one of them works. But like, I would imagine like even inside a single vendor of, of, of internet connected things, they're going to have like four or five different ways where the data goes and how it's mm-hmm. handled, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there isn't going to be A, as much scrutiny, generally speaking, and B, there just isn't enough time for security research or whoever to like look at all the different new silos that have been yeah, yeah, created, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and I think the impact of something going wrong in these environments is is uh, profoundly more significant in a lot of ways. I think I would you know, agree with that. When, when you look at me, Kip Bradford, I tweet something and and that information goes out in the public and people have access to it. And I say something silly, um, you know, I might pay for that emotionally. Um, I might lose my job. The The impact of, of individual data breaches is really small. You know, it, it's it's significant, but it's impacting one or several people. Whereas the impact of, of a data breach for, I mean, we, we see this right now with, with internet data breaches, um, 80 million medical records have been accessed. Sure, sure. Um, when, when you've got connections to the access logs of a hotel system, you know, all of a sudden I can unlock every room in a hotel. Now, the implications of that are, are much more profound or, yeah. you know, being able to, dis- to disable, well, being able to switch off the electrical grid. If, mm-hmm. if you really want to escalate to some extreme levels, um, you can impact millions of people by using one exploit. So the potential, the potential impact being physical harm in addition to reputational and business harm, which you would experience as exactly. something that's yeah, only exactly. online. Or, yeah. or significant financial harm. You know, yeah, yeah. You've, you shut down, uh, I mean, it's, it's the restaurant competition. I know what my, everyone, if, if I'm the restaurant that hires the exploiters and I can know what everyone else is doing in my area, um, I can use that business intelligence to put them out of business. And I think, you know, once, these issues intersect with the the existing physical world and the way in which we adjudicate things there. Like think about the the liability involved uh, mm-hmm. when when something physical fails in your restaurant, your your smoker blows up because mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. someone did something to it and people get injured. Like so, there's 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 a there's a big multiplier that can happen on the effect of, of these things uh, based on sort of just sort of what I call classic liability it has nothing right. to do with things happening on the internet. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah, and and this is this is also new. It's going to take a long time to sort of figure out exactly what could go wrong in each of these cases. I mean, we're we're still in that in that phase with social media now. You know that um, the the way that people get in trouble over tweets is like uh, it's it's randomly chosen, poorly considered tweets out of millions of poorly right. considered tweets. Right, every few weeks, someone catches. A different, random, not particularly significant person saying something awful and puts it on BuzzFeed or something. Well, it's and like that the, person. The B list and C list celebrities. Yeah. Like people who are public figures, but no one knows who they are until they say something bad on yeah, Twitter. Exactly, right? exactly. Um, and I mean, it like uh, like Justine Sacco, who who um, yes. tweeted about uh, about AIDS on her way to South Africa. Um, she had something like 150 Twitter followers when she did that. Right. Um, but she was a she was a borderline person of importance in New York. She worked for a big company, and that. That was about it. And then this tweet was just horrific. Um, and and uh, so that she got elevated by sort of the mechanism of the Internet into a huge celebrity very briefly. And the the engineering parallel that I think of for for something like that, where, um, you know, you can't really say with any certainty that tweeting something like this leads to this kind of reaction because people tweet terrible things all the time and very rarely someone finds one and it, and it causes this kind of reaction. It's a little like the engineering that goes into preventing like airplane crashes. Um, and and William uh, Langevisha has written these amazing articles for, uh, for Vanity Fair about um, a couple of recent uh, commercial airline crashes um, where the point is 
you know, mainline carriers in the developed world crash a plane like every five to 10 years. Like there, there hasn't been a, a mainline U.S. airline crash with fatalities uh, in in more than 10 years now. Um, and so which is amazing. It's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. Right. And, and, and this is they've basically they were they were extremely common in the 60s and they've they have done this incredible work and basically engineered airline fatalities out of existence um, by studying previous crashes and then ensuring that those conditions don't happen again. But now we're at this place where um, they happen so infrequently that you can't understand how a new one would happen. Like any any new one, any new crash that happens um, is, is just a completely novel thing. Right. Um, and so there's like it, it's it's almost out of the realm of engineering and into into something else. When you get to that point, um, you don't have a strong enough sort of data set, a strong enough way to understand it. It just it's something that happens almost randomly and, and is a complete surprise every time. And it's kind of uh, weird when you look at the Internet of Things and, and some of the, the applications that are being used for, because I think a lot of people would would say, well, all the infrastructure that we have, we've already tested it. You know, we've, we've already gone through that cycle where, where the airline industry did. You, know, you start off with, with years of, of heavy failure. You learn those lessons and you engineer those out of the system. And so we've got these mature industrial commercial infrastructure applications where, where all of a sudden we're introducing something new. Yeah. And we're going to have to go through that same cycle of trying to engineer the failure out of these systems. Well, that's because... right. It's like the early jet era again. Well, yes. and, and I think this is, this is a really, the, the, the airplane analogy is actually a perfect one because, it, and it's not even an analogy. It's, it's, we've engineered all of the normal, the, the bugs in normal operation right. out of airline operations. Mm -hmm. But now let's take every airplane. We're going to put a, a satellite modem and a Raspberry Pi with no credentials. Anyone can log into it and hook it up to the, <laughs> the internal networks of the airplane you're going to see a lot more airplanes falling out of the sky, right? Because they haven't been tested in that way. Mm -hmm. there, there isn't this, like, like if you had a, a, a legion of hackers trying to knock airplanes out of the sky and, and could get remote access to the internal networks, there's a whole bunch of ways in which they have not been hardened in any way. Sure, like maybe sure. people have thought about it, but they, they haven't been tested. And so Heartbleed is that kind of thing, right? Where it's like, mm -hmm. like in normal operation, it never comes up. But when someone goes and looks for it and they find it, there's all these interesting holes that no one's ever looked at. When, when people ask me casually about security, especially in industrial um, settings, I'm, uh, I'm a little less pessimistic than a lot of commentators. Uh, because, yeah, for one thing, it's, um, it's harder to get around uh, the security than, than some people assume. And also, uh, a, lot of, a lot of concerns about security sort of assume that, uh, that the world is as ubiquitously and continuously networked as a lot of the people promoting this vision of the Internet of Things say it is or say it will be. Right. Um, and in reality, things are not online to the degree that a lot of people imagine or they're not connected as effectively as a lot of people imagine. Um, and, it, and it's much it's much harder. I mean, Stuxnet did work and, and is an illustration of, you know, what what we are all afraid of. But it took years of study and and extremely um, accurate knowledge of that type of industrial control system to to write it and to get it in. And it's a non-trivial what I see uh, will, that will be very important looking at the IoT of the future is this idea that 
we cannot assume that the systems can be made inherently safe. Mm -hmm. But what we can do is make sure that there's a, there are layers of redundancy going from the software through the electronic systems into the mechanical systems. Because fundamentally, we're hooking up systems that do interact with the physical world, which means that they're at some layer, uh, level, they're mechanical. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and making sure that we look at them as systems, not as these individual pieces where, you know, if you have a software bug, well, your plane goes out of control. It'd be really interesting to, to, to think of, to quantify security risk in this way yeah. uh, in terms of uh, potential energy. Like, and I don't mean by analogy, I mean yeah, actual yeah. physical yeah. potential energy, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. which is how much jet fuel is there in this internet connected device? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That, you know, how that, many, how many electrons are on the grid right now where something uh -huh, could go uh -huh. wrong and exactly. you've got a tremendous amount of potential energy. And, and have that be a, a multiplier on whatever, what other risk metric you have, you know, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. a 50% times a million, like, right, 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 yeah, right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, um, a lot of this does resemble the kind of security engineering that these uh, operators of critical infrastructure have gone through for for decades. I mean, uh, you know, it's very difficult to walk into a nuclear power plant. Um, there have always been tools available by which a sophisticated attacker could, in theory, you know, um, uh, cause a gas pipeline to explode or or disrupt a crucial piece of the electrical grid. And they and they've been hardened um, in the same way that physical assets um, get hardened in proportion to the um, you know to the potential risk and and the potential appeal of the target and you assume that some of them get breached from time to time but mostly you try to push people over to the less critical things i think people will just sort of start to take this nuanced approach in understanding this yeah, i think it requires a blended view and i think mm -hmm. um the thing that we get into with iot that's really interesting is this blend of the two and now we don't have to just ask the question like it's, it's how does the physical security impact the digital security and vice versa so i was mm -hmm. at a privacy academic privacy workshop a couple of weeks ago and, and one of the researchers there was complaining that she lives in an apartment building and that there a bunch of robberies in the neighborhood and and the 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 apartment owner or manager had put in uh, a camera system mm -hmm. uh, and very carefully made sure the camera system was in a lockbox that you couldn't get access to uh, and hadn't changed the default password right <laughs> and so it's like understanding right, right, right. like that that like anyone on the internet could probably get in and see like the the recordings there even though like there was no way to get physical access to it right 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 uh, and 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 understanding how one impacts the other and that that that, that these things exist both in the virtual domain and in the yeah, physical domain yeah. yeah there's there's this this element of basic organizational understanding of security that's that's critical when i when sometimes when i go and hear security talks uh i notice that a, a lot of them sound very clever at first but sort of like buried in there is the fact that they're relying on you know the fact that some hospital hadn't reset the default password on an mri machine it's like well you know it's it's actually not that remarkable. You bought an MRI machine secondhand, discovered that the password was still the default, and then you walked in. It's like finding a door unlocked rather than picking a lock. So one of the things that, that's happening, I think, is that uh, as with the web, where eventually we came to a point where just about every employee at every company uses the internet at some point, um, and therefore is a human factor risk, soon enough, I think, connected devices will become common enough that... Uh, that a lot of people will be dealing with them and need to be made aware of these of these risks and and given a sense of just really pretty rudimentary uh, uh, security practices. You, John, you said something that that made me think about how do criminals see these systems? You know, mm -hmm. thinking about the the organizational aspects of of the way people understand security um, is really interesting. But from the other point of view, you know, what what's the criminal perspective? Uh, I I think as uh, we were discussing some of the um, 
some of the aspects of of how you secure systems. I was thinking about how do people hack into these systems and, and why? Why would mm -hmm. you want to get into mm -hmm. these systems in the first place? The internet has the same kind of questions. So there are people who are, are vandals. There's a spectrum there too of people who are just having fun committing mischief and mm -hmm. doing a lot of damage to people who are have serious criminal intent. Yeah. Um, there are vandals who just aren't going to spend the time to hack into a system because... Yeah. It's not worth their time. You but. make a good point about vandalism because the internet sort of, uh, you know, by anonymizing people creates an environment where people feel um, free to vandalize things. And right. we're talking about stuff that's going on the internet. So right. it's a it's a perfect, you know, there are plenty of decent people who would never um, swing a hammer at a at a glass door walking down the street, but who might do that online because it's anonymous and feels sort of free. Yep. And, and they might think like, oh, I'm just, I'm just spray painting the sign. Nobody's going to care. You know, I'm, I'm doing this little thing and they flip a switch. And really bad stuff happens that they don't anticipate because, you know, they, they stepped on a very important switch. So, so there's an interesting point um, around security and the industrial Internet of Things or maybe Internet of Things in, in general, which which relates to the, the central problem of, of, of cybersecurity today in practice uh, has to do with humans servicing alerts. Mm -hmm. So today you have a network to secure. You can go and buy 11 different sensors th that you put on your network that study the traffic in different ways they look for going out to bad websites or malware and attachments or you know scanning file access in, in terms of um, uh, like antivirus software that like on access scans coming off of disks uh, or look for you know people nefarious traffic on the network and so what you find with a lot of cybersecurity organizations today is that their biggest problem is that they have a stream of alerts that's too big for them to service mm -hmm. and and mm -hmm. if you go and uh, if you look in like the the target attacks with the the, the 50 million credit cards um, the attackers came in through an extranet server for for vendors that 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 target hires to do like HVAC and mechanical mm -hmm, work and mm -hmm. stuff like that, their FireEye system alerted them to the intrusion. Hmm. But it wasn't the only alert they got that day. Right, right, right. right. Um, and so there's a, there's a danger, like the volume of alerts is already a problem. Mm -hmm. um, and I would imagine that the amount of noise in the system goes up the more connected devices you have. So as soon as you bring on 10,000 different nodes on this network that can all, you know, mm -hmm. be generating network traffic that some other sensor can say, well, maybe that looks a little weird or maybe it doesn't. Uh, the, the, just the amount of noise in the system goes up. Yeah. And so just the sheer volume of data could, can be a challenge. There is a central, like a new problem that you're going to see, I think, a lot more of in Internet of Things than, you're, than you would see, especially in the industrial Internet of Things, um, than you're going to see in the sort of the classic Internet space, which is uh, people being able to disrupt what is the truth because, mm -hmm, right. because mm -hmm. so much of it is actually sensors. Mm -hmm. Right, that that are giving you the physical truth of something that's going on. You're making decisions on it, and you can disrupt that uh, in a way that th there isn't a strong analog for, at least not that I'm thinking of right now on the internet. Yeah, and and this this illustrates again the need for sort of um, common platforms, common tools right. for doing this sort of thing. Because if you can um, gather everyone's experience um, in in machine learning and pattern recognition and say, uh, you know, this is what it looks like when an ant walks across the sensor and this is what it looks like when there's an attack going on right. and sort of uh, create a bank of this and then serve it to everyone who needs it, um, then that could be that could be extremely powerful. And that's, you know, another reason for people to collaborate and yeah. find find common uh, common tool sets. Definitely. Well, thank you guys so much for talking about this today. This is fantastic. Um, Great conversation. Where, yeah, this is awesome. Yeah. Where can people uh, find you? Uh, probably the, the good starting point is to just find me on Twitter. My handle is olivebass. That's A-L-E-P-H-B-A-S-S. -S, or, you know, Google knows how to find me. Ari Gesher. Yeah.
uh, Google also knows very well how to find me. Um, and <laughs> privacy. <yeah. laughs> well, I, I take the different approach to privacy by putting so much data out there that no human in the right mind is going to be able to sort it to know actually what I do and who I am and where I am. Right. So uh, it's it's the saturation. Um, I, I always think it's like people of our age that have been involved in technology have this magical understanding that when you put things on the internet, you're publishing. And so mm -hmm. like the way I deal with it is if I don't want people to know about it, I just don't put it on the internet. Exactly. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know it's radical, but right, 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 right. it's crazy. Yeah. yeah, binary makes it so much easier, so much simpler. Yeah. So yeah, and yeah. I'm at Kipworks on Twitter, uh, which is K-I-P-P-W-O-R-K-S. Excellent. Thank you both. You guys know this has been recorded, right? Wait, what? <laughs> oh, crap. Is this going on the internet? <laughs> For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. Bruner.